0: This is gonna be a slightly different podcast today because of what's going on in the world. In the Book of Lamentations, there is that moment at the very beginning where we have the eyewitness accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem and the opening word of the Book of Lamentations, which is also its name in Hebrew, is Echa, how? How did this happen? How did it happen? that we're still internalizing the news. It's something I never saw in my life. It's something I used to imagine that would have happened to my grandmother and my grandfather in Europe. We're talking today about trauma. And this is a topic that many of us know about because many of us live with and through and in the wake of our own private traumas. But today and this week, what you all have to understand is that the Jewish people is experiencing a major trauma that has affected our souls and our minds, and I, I'll i say as well, our bodies. This has been the most difficult week in the history of the Jewish people since the end of the Holocaust in 1945. This is not even an attack on Israel. Let's just call it what it is, historically speaking. This is a pogrom, and it makes the most infamous pogroms in Jewish history, those at Kishinev in 1903, pale. In comparison, Uh, to go through this is like going through the Book of Lamentations. We're dealing now with Hamas, which is an international Manson family. They didn't go after military targets. They took hostages, children, elderly people, a Holocaust survivor who uses a wheelchair and several soldiers. They killed at least 260 people at a music festival in southern Israel. They rounded up Jews and they shot them in the streets. We haven't seen this since the days of the Holocaust. They dragged hostages through the streets of Gaza. They mutilated corpses. They called on their people to use all weapons. Children, tormenting other children in the streets. And the charter of Hamas calls for the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jews. How has this happened with more than 1,200 Israelis dead? So I'm going to go back to... The first chapter of the Book of Lamentations, which Jews chant on Tisha B'Av, the commemoration of the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem. For these things do I weep. My eyes flow with tears. Far from me is any comforter who might revive my spirit. My children are forlorn, for the foe has prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands. She has no one to comfort her. That's where we are. We're dealing with a lack of comfort at this moment. But we're going to find comfort today in the way that Jews have always found comfort. We're going to talk about text, Bible. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And today, oh my God, today, all days, all weeks, we've all been shaken and stirred. I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Sulkin, and our guest is Jacob L. Wright. He's professor of Hebrew Bible at the Candler School of Theology at Emory University. His books have won major awards. He teaches a six-week Coursera course. This is very cool, called The Bible's Prehistory, Purpose, and Political Future. And it has reached more than 60,000 students, and apparently it's one of the most highly rated courses on the platform, which now means that I know what I'm going to be doing with my spare time.
1: I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief.
2: I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up,
1: it was gonna have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app.
0: Jacob, your new book, Mm -hmm. a fantastic book. Yeah. Why the Bible Began, an Alternative History of Scripture and Its Origins. Jacob, it's good to have you here. Welcome. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, it's such a pleasure being here, Rabbi Salkin. You know. I really... um, was moved by what you just said, and uh, we all are very much, I think, to say it mildly, in shock and disillusioned right now, and this is a hard time. The book is coming out, it's exciting about that, but it's such a mixed bag now with all of what's happening.
0: I know how you're feeling, I think. It's sort of like ashes in my mouth. It's I, I want to take pride in this, mm. I want to take joy in, in this, but there's no joy now. You know, I want to say something, you and I, mm. we've known each other for a number of years, from the time that I spent uh, in Atlanta, hanging out at Emory, hanging out at Candler. We have many, many mutual friends. So I want to talk about mm. the book for a second the book is really about Mm -hmm. why the Bible was written. And your major point is that the Bible emerges out of the ancient Jewish people's confrontation with trauma. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's my main point.
2: I mean, it's two things, division and defeat. And the division is a, whole story between north and south very strangely north and south but these kingdoms were destroyed and they were destroyed by conquering empires colonizing the, the levant ancient palestine and um, it's though the Bible is written out of those moments, not at the moments of triumph, not at the moments of King David and Solomon, but at the moments of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, the return to Zion, the rebuilding under very different conditions, a community that had been shaken to the root roots and now is looking for a way forward. And that's what I'm trying to show that defeat is not something that has been superimposed on the Bible from a later perspective, but is the the moment from which it emerges to its very core. There are older texts, but they have been thoroughly reshaped with trauma, collective trauma in view.
0: You know, I, you just said something very interesting, and I want to I jump on it before we lose it, even though it's really not about trauma. <laughs> when I read your book, and I've read other things as well, about the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they had split apart after the death of Solomon, basically because King Rehoboam was an egotistical little brat who listened to his advisors and decided to tax the people more. And that led to the split of our sovereignty. So there's a northern narrative Mm -hmm. and there's a southern narrative. So just let me ask you something, Mm -hmm. because I want to jam with you on this before we get back to the trauma piece. (laughs)
2: I'm just always impressed how much biblical scholarship you follow. It's like crazy. I know a lot of rabbis follow the biblical scholarship. I'm you a really Bible know scholar nerd. Go ahead, Rabbi. Yeah, but you no. need to
0: understand something. Go ahead. What I'm finding fascinating here is, since we're talking about America today, do you see parallels? Mm-hmm. Do you see parallels between the northern narrative in the United States and the southern narrative in the United States. Can you talk about that? Because I think this is great. (laughs) Well, um, there are
2: parallels, and I hesitate to make them. I use the word North and South, capital N and capital S throughout the book to kind of suggest that, but I don't want to push it too far. I think what might One might say is that the Northern Kingdom was a much stronger kingdom. It had really dominated the the South for a long time. And when the Northern Kingdom was destroyed, the Southern Kingdom actually probably was very happy about it because that was the moment which the Davidic dynasty could really seize the day. That's the days of Hezekiah and Josiah and all those. But here's the thing the Southern narrative. It was all about we, are, we will rebuild Zion, Jerusalem, David, and so forth. But then the temple was destroyed, and they, too, faced defeat. The defeat, the same kind of defeat from imperial armies that the northern kingdom had faced 130 years before. And what the northern kingdom did, at least some of the scribes in their midst, what they did in response to defeat in 722 by the Assyrians, Samaria, and so forth, what they did was try to imagine being a people without a king. And that's the story of the Exodus. Who brought us out of slavery? It wasn't David. It was our God. And the southern kingdom kept pushing David until they too suffered Devastating trauma with the Judah really being wiped out. The archaeological record demonstrates that terribly. We can see the the ashes, we can see a burn records, all kinds of stuff in Jerusalem and elsewhere. And it was at that point that the southern narrative had to take a twist, and that is, okay, Jerusalem can be destroyed, the Davidic dynasty can be conquered. What are we going to do? We're going to look at that strategy that had been first uh, developed by a defeated uh,
0: kingdom to the north. So this is really, really important because you and I know a joke. There's this joke that Jews like to tell, that every Jewish holiday can be summed up as they hated us, they tried to kill us, we won, let's Mm see. Now, what we're dealing with here today, this week, is they hate us. They tried to kill us. They succeeded more than we could have imagined. We haven't won, and we're not eating yet. As a matter of fact, I know of communities around the country that are declaring tomorrow to be a meat tomorrow to be a fast day, to be a fast day. We're, mm. we're using biblical mm. imagery now. So here's the question. How do we make sure that our reading of the Bible does not imbue us with, The victim narrative, because I have to tell you, Jacob, this week, Mm. the victim Mm. narrative is feeling very real to me.
2: Mm. Well, um, that's where I think the Bible really shows off. In a majestic sense, it moves beyond victimhood. It actually takes responsibility for conquest, for the conquest of empires in a weird way. That's covenantal kind of stuff. And that's problematic. And the book of Job shows that it doesn't really work on the personal level. But the most important thing for us is that it doesn't relish in victimhood. I love what Susan Nyman says. Being a victim is not a claim to to any kind of feat. It's like being born. It's how one responds to trauma. How one grows and develops from it. Now we're in a moment where the Bible really isn't written for us. Maybe Echa is written for us, right? Where we can cry out with anger, with anger toward the deity, with anger towards the whole. But the Bible is really written for the day after. The Bible is written for the kind of coming together as a community, refocusing ourselves on the essentials, education, our families, our our life, and in the fullest sense, and being able to come to terms with a changed reality, a reality where there's no more kingdom, no more sovereignty, but we can still be a people. We can be
0: exiled and and dispersed, but nevertheless united. Does the Bible have anything to say to people who are not necessarily believers, Jews, Christians, or Muslims, to secular people, Mm -hmm. atheists, agnostics? Can it teach us something about how to create Mm -hmm. meaning in our lives? Yeah. um... That's what
2: I tried to write the Bible for is those,
0: you know, I'm not trying
2: to um, in any way diminish the religious part of the theological part of it. So a lot of people who read Bible and scripture are going to, it's going to resonate with them. But I'm really trying to reach out beyond with the Coursera course. We had students in Iran, one of the biggest students in, hmm. is in Bangladesh, throughout the Middle East, in China. Why did they want to study the Bible? Because we moved past this typical code book of morality, either for or against it, to looking at the how and the why, that this is a project of come to terms with trauma, with destruction, reinventing oneself, making it around a text, and coming together and proclaiming oneself that we all go back to one family, like in the book of Genesis. So I think it has a lot to do with um, how some communities manage to survive and overcome destruction, domination. And how, the, how others go the way of all flesh, as they say in the King James Version. Um, and that is, kingdoms are all destroyed. And what's going to last? What's going to endure? And that's where the biblical authors are really pushing. What kind of peoplehood can we create in preparation for the vagaries of history that are going to— um, you know, bring down every ki- kingdom, every state, whether we like you know, it's it or really
0: not. You really interesting to me. You say something in this book that I never really quite thought of in a coherent way, and that is the role of volunteerism in the creation of the community. So, for example, mm. the whole idea in the building yeah. of the tabernacle in the ancient uh, model mm. of the book of Exodus that people should bring these offerings from anyone whose heart so moves them. There's an element of, Mm -hmm. yes, this is what God wants, but also it's what we need to to do. Is there a lesson in that for us as modern people?
2: Mm -hmm. So kingdoms, if you imagine, kingdoms are just an ancient form of states, like countries today, like the United States or the state of Israel. And what they do is they conscript they tell you, you pay your taxes or else you serve or else. A nation is what I call a state of mind. It's really a, It's about a narrative that creates the
0: need, the drive, the desire to come together. And that's volitional. So, Jacob, you have a lot to say in the book about the role of women. Can you talk more about that? Well...
2: Um, Strangely enough, a lot of people think of the Bible as something very much against women, and there are definitely problematic parts to it. But you cannot get around the fact that for a national epic, uh, to begin with the story of families— in which a woman, Sarah, um, plays a central role, contrary to Abram's expectations and how women go on to shape the nation from Miriam and the midwives to uh, onto Deborah, who is the ideal leader. And everybody who follows after that, Gideon and all, these are reprobates. These are macho kinds of guys. And Deborah is called a mother, a mother of Israel. And she is not in the sense of, you know, actually having physical children. She is a mother in the sense of being a leader, a leader who goes and protects her people, but is not about making a name for herself. And that's where the biblical authors are trying. They're writing for men. These are probably male scribes, but they're pointing to, we need to learn the ways of women, number one, how they survive in a world in which the cards are stacked against them. And number two, we need all hands on deck. We'll be right
1: back. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary. In a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app.
0: Again, from the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism. For those who want to be shaken and stirred, I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. With us is uh, Jacob Wright, professor of Hebrew Bible at the Candler School of Theology. His new book, Why the Bible Began, An Alternative History of Scripture, And its origins, and I noted at the beginning, I'll note again, that we are recording this, and this will be coming out during a week of unprecedented trauma in modern Jewish history. But let's talk again now about trauma, Jacob. Mm -hmm. I want to go to this week's Torah portion. This Mm -hmm. is Bereshit. This Mm -hmm. is about the creation of the world. And you taught something in your book that I've known for a long time, I just haven't really internalized it well, which is that in the ancient Near Eastern epics, the world is created out of a traumatic experience. And if I read you correctly, the Torah transforms that trauma into something deeper and better. And I am thinking that there is something here we need to learn this week. Go for it. What you're referring to is the
2: Babylonian myth of creation. It has a male god who represents the the Babylon, Marduk, slaying a female god in this violent war, and then from her corpse creating the world. And it's the weapons with which he does that, those are born by the empire, the kings, the palace, to go out and carve up the world in a new imperial fashion. Right? And it's very strange that some of the similarities between that kind of account of creation and Genesis 1 lead people to believe that. Genesis 1 is actually a response to it, and I leave that aside, but there are some indications that it is, like Tehom, Tiamat is the name of the female goddess, but we'll leave that aside. Here's what Genesis 1 does. We all agree that it's written quite late, but, and if it knows the Babylonian myth, what it's doing is removing the sword out of the picture and turning to what? To words. I learned this from you, Mm. sword to words, removing that S out of it. And I really love that I'm gonna use that. And what I mean there is there's nobody to oppose the deity. The deity is in this pre-existent state where there Tehom and, and the deity are dwelling together in actually in a harmonious fashion. And when creation happens, it's through the word and it's done in a peaceful, beautiful, architectural artistic manner it's done over the course of six days of labor and resting it is that six days that sabbath structure allows jews to say we have that kind of ability to imitate our creator wherever we are we have our sabbath we have our time we have our words we don't have the sword we have our words though And our deity spoke our very words. When he said, let there be light, the most beautiful words ever spoken, he spoke Hebrew, yi-or. And that reinvigorates a defeated, traumatized community to look to their own language, to look to their words, to look beyond the sword, and to find some future in a God-created and good creation. A a creation that is proclaimed good and that will endure despite all of the stuff that everyone is doing to destroy it.
0: So this is a view of God that we can aspire to imitate. Mm. Not a God that creates the world out of the bloodied corpse of an ancient female goddess, but a God who talks the world Mm. into...
2: Existence. What makes it even more um, interesting is that we do have our the deity of the Bible, Adonai, fighting Leviathan in these kinds of myths. But you know what? They're kept back in the book of Psalms, and they're played with in the prophets.
0: They're not in Genesis 1. So this is really important because a lot of people read the Bible badly. Mm-hmm. I've often said, and Jacob, you're going to have to agree with me on this, I think. If you're driving around Atlanta— mm-hmm. And you pass a religious building that says, read the Bible. Mm-hmm. It's not a synagogue. That's true. Jews don't read the Bible. We study Torah. That's true. And I I have often said to myself that there are many good, smart, literate people who start reading the Bible and they shut down right around the whole thing about the sons of the gods coming <laughs> and partying with the daughters of That's men. That's pretty early on. So what you're saying. So what you're saying is that you really do need a guide to get you through this, or you're just going to get stuck in a lot of,
2: I don't want to call it garbage,
0: sacred stuff.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot in there. You'll get right into chapter four or five and get into all kinds of names and so forth and sitting down and reading through the Bible. There's a a journalist who's doing that or has recently done that, and I... I uh, don't envy that at all. There's a lot of boring stuff, and that's what I'm trying to do is to, like, help us understand a text that we thought we knew and to really show you—show us, show myself. It was, in a sense, a revelation to me as I worked on it. Um, The things that we thought we knew are not that quite correct, and there's really a lot more there than we ever thought we would ever see. And it's—the biblical project is just— I'm in awe of it. I have to say, I am in awe. And I was accused of being an apologist for it. (laughs) I'm not really trying to make some kind of defense. I am, though, trying to draw attention to the extraordinary achievement of these scribes who kept themselves out of the pictures and pointed us to others, to men and women and their quotidian struggles. Um, And it's just, I'm glad and very proud to be able to teach it.
0: And you've done a spectacular job. This book is about trauma. It's about how the biblical epic was constructed out of survivors. And the collective people of Israel, Mm -hmm. we're Job. Mm -hmm. We're sitting in our sackcloth and ashes and our kids were carried away. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to Job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Our homes destroyed, our kids carried away. We are Job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kids stuff. And people is too, are coming yeah. around, and they're, yeah. and they've got all sorts of opinions, geopolitical mm-hmm. opinions, and theological opinions, and everything. And I have just had to say to people, "Shut up." Let's just sit in silence. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, how can someone come to a guy like Job, who has lost his very kids, and then try to explain stuff to him? Even if they waited seven days, it's, and that's what's happening a lot. I watching social media and everybody, everybody's trying to explain, talk about it. Jews are doing it, but a lot of non-Jews are doing it, and it's like this is the time to be silent, to be angry, to get ready to fight. In terms of, uh, you know, Job taking on the deity and and not putting up with a reality that's been imposed upon him and to try to change it, right? That's what Job is about. But Job is also one whom we, with whom we can identify because he's gone through so much and he has to listen to these friends telling him what it's all about.
0: We are all Job. It, it's such a... It's such a powerful image here. So, Mm. Jacob, let's just rewind a second. Let's get off of Bible. Let's just go go to you. How did you fall in love with this stuff? Right after I graduated, I went to Dachau, and I worked there.
2: And I worked in the concentration camp, and um, I saw a lot of different things in terms of Germany's confrontation with its past. And what I saw was something very similar to Later now I realize is something what the biblical authors did and they and what Germany has done is take responsibility, responsibility for the atrocities they haven't denied it. And one of the things about the South in America and other places is this: what we have all over the U.S. right now is this denial of reality. Oh, we didn't lose. We didn't lose the election. All that kind of stuff. So Germany has really grown amazingly in terms of, uh, of its self-consciousness and its identity as a nation because it's faced its past. And uh, the biblical authors... In, in contrast, are creating culpability where there is none, right? Uh, the Germans were culpable. The, the the people of Israel and Judah did not deserve to be destroyed by these colonial empires who, you know, were trying to to take the world. However, they tried to find some narrative, some hope, and that hope was, what can we do? What can we do to make us ourselves stronger going forward? And um, that's was powerful for me as I was living there and then I did my PhD and I've really devoted my life to that kind of collaboration between Germans and Israelis and Americans around biblical studies because I think Germany just has so much to teach us. It's very strange for a Jew to be saying that. But things change. They really do. Germany's facing a lot of problems, but I'm very proud to have studied there.
0: You know, it's interesting you say this because I read Susan Nyman's book Mm. about learning from the Germans and how the American Mm. South could be learning from Germany about commemorating the scars and the traumas, again, in our own history. And it has often occurred to me that there should be plaques on every tree or every place where there had been a lynching, that that's the only way for us to confront the trauma of the past.
2: What you're talking is these called Stolpersteine. It's like you trip over over these little brass stones in the stone streets all over the place. And it's like here in this house lived so-and-so who were schlepped off to the camps and died. And Germans have to look at those everywhere they go. And what you're saying and suggesting is really powerful, and that is, we need to remind ourselves also of the atrocities that Americans have perpetrated.
0: I want to talk about what's happening in terms of national politics here and the rise of Christian nationalism in America. What wisdom does your book have for those who are considering that particular phenomenon in American politics? The Bible bears
2: definitely on the question of nationalism, And Christian nationalism is a really what I call a perversion of it. The biblical authors, um, maybe for the first time in history, imagined what it means to be a nation. A nation is a people, not a country or a state or kingdom. It's a people. Nationalism is about who we are not, to quote Jill Lepore, right? We are not them. We are not them. Patriotism or peoplehood, as I call it, the kind of nation as envisioned in the Bible is about who we are.
0: You know, what's so powerful for me about what you've said is that I've always believed that there is a difference, sometimes subtle, but sometimes not so subtle, between patriotism, nationalism, and then chauvinism. And that nationalism in and of itself is morally neutral, but as soon as we get into chauvinism and into xenophobia, we get into a situation wherein lies death camps.
2: Ultimate. And that's why the biblical narrative really has to face that question of the other, right up front and center, right? With Hagar, as soon as we're introduced to Abraham and Sarah, we're introduced to Hagar, who is this other. And the biblical authors give her her, her own redemptive story long before Israel gets it. Right when the Israelites enter later enter Canaan, the first woman they encounter, the first person is Rahab. Rahab the prostitute, the harlot, and they save her and her family. And the question is, how do we integrate outsiders? We're going to be a people, but it's not going to be, it's not about, we are ethnically pure, we're ethnically superior. No, the deity constantly tells the Jews in the Bible, it's not because you're anything better. Actually, you're not at all. The biblical authors are not trying to mobilize a liberation. They're trying to prepare for the long haul. They're trying not to become victims in terms of retaliating and going to the other end. They're trying to say, let's leave all that aside. There'll be a time and a place. There's a time and a place for statehood. But it's not the central plan. The central plan that begins in Genesis, the patriarchs and matrix and liberation, that's peoplehood. That's we can be a people even in the wilderness. We can be a people in exile in Esther.
0: So this is a powerful message to all of us right now as we face what is going on in the world. Your sense of the other is something that I've embraced. I wrote a book a number of years ago called Righteous Gentiles in the Hebrew Bible, in which I tried to show that Jewish history is not a veil of tears, that you're right. As soon as Abraham appears, it's not only Hagar, but it's also Melchizedek, this this priest of Shalem, this Canaanite king That's priest good, yeah. who blesses him. and. And blesses him, by the way, let me now just be very clear, blesses him after Abraham, his name at that point is Avram, has gone on a rescue mission to try to rescue his nephew Lot, who has been taken hostage in Mm -hmm. a time of violence. The first war in the Mm -hmm. Middle East is in fact the war in which Lot is taken hostage and in which Avram or Abraham wins a blessing because of his sense of solidarity with his kin. It's a sense of creating a community out of a family and the hope of a family of nations out of disparate families. This has been a wonderful, wonderful talk. I want to end on the following note, though. When you mention Job, when we talk about the book of Job, What occurs to me is that we have an ancient story of a trauma, a trauma that hits Job. And he loses his sons and he loses his daughters. And then I go to the very end of the book. Yeah. And the end of the book has always troubled me because it's a fairy tale. And it says that... Job gets new sons, and he gets new daughters. And the last line of the book was, and there were none as beautiful in the land as the daughters of Job. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this, and I'm saying to myself, I'm looking at the pictures yeah. of the kids who've been killed and taken hostage and Jacob there's not one among them that isn't gorgeous mm. inner beauty outer beauty that radiates mm. and you and I know that the fantasy of being job and getting our kids back that's an ancient resurrection fantasy i believe but it's about maintaining some kind of it hope some kind of hope in despair. You know, I, I, I love to tease people with the following. Some people think that the Bible's greatest invention was the idea of monotheism, <laughs> of one God. Some people think that was Judaism's greatest invention. Some people say the Jews invented monotheism, we invented the Torah, we invented the idea of God, we invented psychoanalysis, we invented the entertainment business. The greatest Jewish invention invention of them all is hope. Yes, yes. Tikva. Uh, uh,
2: amen to that. I, I, the tr- it departs from that tragic vision, both in the ancient Near East as well as in ancient Greece. And it, there is a, like in the words of Yip Harburg writing in 19, what, 37? Somewhere over the rainbow, right? He had escaped from persecution and he came and brought a Hollywood happy ending, right? Or he introduced a happy ending to Hollywood. That, that that hope that reverberates in Hollywood is very deeply implanted by Jews, who 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 in many ways
0: yes. And I think of David Broza, the Israeli pop star, mm-hmm. who gave a concert and sang his iconic song, Ye Tov, Ye yeah. Tov. It'll be okay. But... Lefamim ani nishbar. Sometimes I'm broken. And out of this brokenness, there will come something. But we can't see it now. There's Job is a sad figure at the very end because he has all this beautiful stuff
2: but we know where he is inside. He's gone to battle with the deity. He's plummeted the depths of existence. He's got things returned to him, but he also knows there's a God who plays with him in weird ways, and he has to come to terms with that.
0: I've often focused on this, and on this note we shall end, that the Western hero in the cowboy movie gallops off into the sunset. The Jewish hero in the story of Jacob limps off into the sunrise that we limp but we dance (laughs) and we will dance with special thanks once again to our friend professor Jacob Wright you do need to read his book it's wonderful and by the way I have to say something uh, about his book why the Bible began an alternative history of Scripture and its origins one of the great things about this new book is if you're an archaeology nerd there's a lot of great stuff in there that you're really going to love. And he puts a lot of great scholarship and soulfulness into this. And so, thanks, Jacob. Thanks for being oh. with us. It's a terrible week. Oh, yeah. Well, this has helped, an awful actually, week. Rabbi, but...
2: This has really helped me. Um, I've been, you know, very disillusioned by this all. And I wasn't really prepared for this talk, but I'm so glad I did it in terms of just coming to you and having hearing words of wisdom from you. I appreciate it.
0: It's a privilege to have you. Well, I invite you all to follow my regular column of the same name, Martini Judaism, on Religion News Service, religionnews.com. Our producer is Jay Woodward. We get production assistance from Julia Windham. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production for Religion News Service. Reminder that Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, is available on Spotify, Google, Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. Look, you would really help us. If you download the podcast, leave us a five-star rating. And friends, this is a terrible, terrible time for so many people. Hold each other close. If you're listening to this, and if you have friends in Israel if you've got friends who are Jews, if you've got friends who are in the midst of this, this is the time when we need a hug. This is really difficult stuff. I'd like to believe, as David Broza sings, Ye Tov. to you, Rabbi. It'll be okay. Thanks, thanks, thanks.